0: Well, good morning. morning. My name is Otto. It's good to be before you today. I get the good chance to bring God's Word to you uh, this morning. It's now about 11.15, and so I will try to condense everything that I have to say in a good short 25 to to 30 minutes. Um, I do have some things that I'd like to convey to you about our series uh, that you just saw on the screen there about the power of words and the impact that they have to shape our lives. Now, Tina and I were talking about this song that you just heard and about how we needed to create some kind of dance that either Pastor Matt did or that I did on our way up on the stage, and I'm sorry, I almost broke out and danced, but I know that I would break my back if I did that, so I apologize. I just stood before you with this awkward uh, moment in time, but anyways, I want to go ahead and get started. If you could open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Um, and just kind of park yourselves there. I'm going to make a few introductory comments that tell you a story uh, that will kind of get us moving in the right direction. And then we'll actually draw maybe three main ideas from Luke chapter 6. And then I'm going to close with a nice little poetic thought, and uh, we'll be on our way. Once upon a time, there was a turtle who lived at a pond with two ducks as his best friends and the turtle really loved to talk he talked all day long and he would oftentimes talk into the night and he just thoroughly enjoyed talking and really loved actually the sound of his own own voice you might have some friends like this maybe you're the one that likes to talk and just listen to yourself talk into the air and the ducks were very patient they were good friends and uh, they put up with this, this turtle who liked to talk all the time. And they would hang around this pond. And one summer, the pond got really dry. And it got to be so dry that the ducks came up to the turtle and they said, Turtle, uh, look, we're your buddies. We're good friends. But we can't stay here any longer because uh, there isn't enough water for us here anymore. So we're going to have to fly away. And the turtle said, well, don't leave me. Please, please stay here with me. I need somebody to talk to, and I'd like to go with you. And the duck said, well, you can't go with us because, you know, you can't fly. And the turtle said, please, please, don't leave me. I'll be all alone, and I won't have anybody here to talk to on a daily basis. Please just, just take me with you. Oh, please, he said. So the ducks thought for a while, and they said, well, maybe there's one way that we could take you with us. Um but you really have to cooperate if you're going to go along. And the the turtle said, I can do it. I can do it. So what the ducks did was they went nearby and they found a stick. And the ducks said to the turtle, here's what's going to happen. One duck is going to be on one end and another duck is going to be on the other end. And we're going to have you hold on to the middle. And you're going to hold on with your mouth. And you're going to have to keep your mouth shut the whole time. Otherwise, it's going to be really bad. And the turtle said, I can do it. I know I can do it. They said, all right. So one duck got on one end. The other duck got on the other end. And the turtle clamped down in the middle. And they started to fly. And even though he liked to talk, the turtle really was committed to keeping his mouth shut. So they were flying over a town. And the turtle thought to himself, man, this is really wonderful. And he wanted to say so. But he thought to himself, I better keep my mouth shut, otherwise I'll be in trouble. And they flew over some cornfields, and it was just a beautiful day, the sunshine was out, and he thought to himself, boy, those are some really fine-looking cornfields. And he wanted to say so, but he thought to himself, I better keep my mouth shut. Then they flew over a church, and the church had a really tall steeple, and it was beautiful, and he wanted to say, man, that church has a really nice steeple. But he thought to himself, I better keep my mouth shut. And they flew over that church, and they were flying over a town. And there were some people down there on the ground, and they looked up at the turtle, and they said, look, there's a turtle and two ducks flying. Isn't that just the strangest thing you had ever seen? And the duck thought to himself, well, I'd like to tell those people what I think, but I better keep my mouth shut. So they kept flying over this community, and they got to the edge of town, and there was a carnival with a bunch of people down there, and they looked up, and they said, That's the funniest thing we have ever seen. Two ducks and a turtle flying over a carnival. That's even funnier than anything here at the carnival. Uh, This is just the weirdest thing we had ever seen. And they all started laughing and making fun of the turtle and the ducks. That made the turtle so mad. And he looked down at those people and he said to them, you all need to shut up. That was the end of that turtle's life on that day. (laughs) So the last few weeks, we've been doing a series, I think you get the point, on the power of our words, and knowing what to say, and knowing when to say it, can mean the difference between life and death, as it did for this turtle. In fact, we've based our entire series on Proverbs 18.21, which says, the tongue has the power of life and death. So the point here is that when we speak words, our words can have such a profound impact on the lives that we live. Things that come alive and flourish can come alive and flourish because of the words that we speak, or they can shrivel up and die because of the words that we speak. Our words have power to shape lives of our own, lives around us, and really, you know, the lives even within this church. And so, as I thought about this, it reminded me of something I came across as a communication student. I studied communication, and one of the things that we would look at is marriage communication. And you'll probably see up on the screen some things that I'm going to kind of share with you about this particular idea. There were some studies done by a guy by the name of John Gottman and Erwin Losada. And they created this thing called the Losada Ratio, which was basically this. They predicted, based on their studies, by five positive words to every one negative word, whether or not a marriage was going to be successful. And they basically said that if a marriage was made up of five positive words for every one negative word, that the marriage most likely would succeed. Well, they were kind of being challenged by some of their colleagues. They said, all right, well, we're going to really put this to the test. So John Gottman and Erwin Nosada teamed together Uh, a bunch of academics who wanted to study this. So they put out some money, and they recruited 700 couples who um, had gotten their marriage licenses. They were recently married, and they studied these couples. And they paid attention to their interactions for only 15 minutes. And they cataloged every positive and every negative interaction. And they wanted to test their theory that for every five positive words and every one negative word, whether or not the marriages would succeed. Their basic hypothesis was if a marriage has any less than five positive words for every one negative word, that a marriage wouldn't succeed. So what they found was that 94% of the time they were accurate. They, They looked up these marriages 10 years later, And over 94% of the marriages who had any less than five positive words for every one negative word ended in divorce. What was even more interesting was that they found for every one positive word, there was one negative word, almost always those marriages would end in divorce. Pretty amazing statistic. What it really illustrates is the power and impact of our words, and how true this proverb is, that life and death really does exist in the power of the tongue. Now, I would have assumed that for every positive word, you, or every negative word, that all you would need is a positive word to offset it. Isn't that what you would think? But it isn't true. But then I read James chapter 3, and it'll be up here on the screen for you, and it says this. It says, likewise, the tongue is a smaller part of the body. But it makes great boasts. It says, "Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, and it sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself on fire by hell." So James is just basically saying that the tongue can produce such great devastation and destruction by just one word spoken. Just in the same way that a fire is started by a small spark, it doesn't necessarily take a barrel of gasoline or lighter fluid to start a fire, but it's one small thing to create a forest fire. And in the same way, one word can create similar types of damage. It could be one careless utterance, one proud and arrogant statement, one bitter and unforgiving expression. This is what starts destruction... In a marriage, a church, a family, and even a friendship. But what I want to focus on today in Luke chapter 6 is where our words come from. We already know that words have deep impact and they can profoundly affect the lives of those around us. But I want to focus on where these words originate. Because there are sometimes I say things. And I think to myself, where in the world did that come from? Have you ever thought that about your life? You know, you're in a conversation with someone and that something comes out of your mouth and you're like, how in the world did that come out of my mouth? Why did I say that? Uh, You might have known a couple of weeks ago we were on vacation in the Outer Banks. And if you've ever been to the Outer Banks, you know that there's a lot of traffic in the Outer Banks. Our first year down there, the last 40 miles took us five and a half hours to travel down that one road. So on our way back, we hit some traffic, and we were caught in a jam, and uh, there was a a lady right beside me and people all around me, you know, that didn't know how to drive. (laughs) And I said as much, and I said something kind of nasty to this lady over here, and my wife leans over to me and looks at me like, who in the world are you? I'm like, I don't know. She doesn't know how to drive, and neither do these people, and so I'm pretty ticked off. So some of us can say some of the weirdest, strangest things in the most intense, stressful moments. We just talked about marital communication, and so many of us can say to our spouses things that we later regret. And we think, where did that come from? Sometimes it can be in the workplace. You might have a coworker who likes to gossip about everyone else, And before you know it, you're deeply engaged in the same thing. And you walk away thinking, oh my gosh, how did I I do that? And yet maybe when you get around church friends, you might tend to find things that you don't like and you begin to have a conversation about what's wrong with other Christians or with the church or things like that. And it starts like a wildfire. And before you know it, it's out of control. And you think, where did those words come from? So my goal today is to deal with where these words come from. Because they're not random utterances that proceed from our mouth. Jesus tells us exactly where they come from in Luke chapter 6. Let's read, let's read verses 43 through 45. He says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized By its own fruit. He says, People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Now, I'm sure all of us have read these words and have heard other teachings on this passage of Scripture. But it seems appropriate that if we're talking about the power of words to shape lives, that we might reflect on where these words come from. And so Jesus goes straight to the core issue. He says in verse 45, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So he establishes a very basic principle about human communication that that many often don't talk about. And it's this, words come from the heart. So, words are not a random, spontaneous combustion of noise, but they are rooted in the center of a person's being. It's deeper than personality traits. It's deeper than a mental health issue, because our words define the condition of who we are as people. Words reveal who we are, and according to Jesus, the stuff you have in your heart will eventually come out in conversation with those around you. It comes out in casual conversation. It comes out in stressful conversation, in times of anxiety, when you're afraid, when you're angry, because the heart speaks what the mouth is full of. Some of it might be good, and some of it might be bad. So the title of the brief message today is simply this, the heart in the mouth. And so in these few verses, Jesus is going to be answering some important questions about the heart and the mouth. So we're going to consider three basic ideas that he addresses. The first idea is this, a good heart is made by what it holds on to. Look at verse 45 again. It says, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. So this happens when you hold on to the good that others have spoken into you. If you grew up in a good home and you had good parents, they have spoken words of life and planted seeds in you, this good is stored inside of you. This also happens when you hold on to God's word that is planted inside of you. If you park yourself in Sunday school, if you go to a small group, if you read God's word on a daily basis, this is stored inside of you and it eventually comes out. This happens when you hold on to the testimony of what God has done in your life. When you're having a bad day and you're having a challenge and you think about the stuff that God has done in your life, this is what is stored in your heart. This also happens when you have an undivided focus on God's plan for your life. Things will get bad, people will speak negatively, but if you focus on the plan that God has for your life, it's stored in your heart because whatever you hold on to is what will live and grow inside of you. Now, what's important to consider about this is that when this happens, it's good to store the good stuff because there won't be any room for the bad stuff when your heart is full of good stuff. Even when the bad stuff tries to creep in, because of the good stuff that is in there, there's no room for the bad to take up residence in your heart. The bad stuff tries to come in, but the good stuff will say to the bad stuff, you don't belong here. We only let good stuff in. For example, when a person is rejected by someone in their life, it will not be allowed to take root in that person's heart because of your identity in Christ that takes up too much space. When someone lies about you, these lies will not be able to take root because too many people have spoken truth over your life. When things start to go bad in your career, You don't become consumed with worry because your belief is that God has a plan for your life and it takes up too much space. And so when someone tries to challenge your belief in God's truth, your faith doesn't wane because there's too much of God's word that takes up the space. And this is what happened, for instance, to Jesus when he was challenged by the devil. Look at Luke chapter 4. It's on the screen for you. When the devil tried to use God's word against Jesus. Look at what Jesus said. The Bible says the devil led him to Jerusalem, referring to Jesus, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. This is what the devil said. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. In verse 10 it says, for it is written, this is Satan talking to Jesus. He quotes scripture. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not not strike your foot against a stone. So the devil is using Scripture against Jesus, and then Jesus responds to the devil with Scripture, and he says, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. See, the devil knows the Scriptures, but what the devil tries to do with the Scriptures is twist them to get you to disbelieve in God and to fill up that storage space in your heart. But since Jesus had God's word stored away inside of him in the right way, he was able to use it to keep the devil's lies from taking root in his heart. All the space in the heart of Jesus was filled with God's truth. And so when the devil came to get him off his plan, Jesus called him on it. You remember that during the last moments of Jesus' life, we know from the scriptures that he was mocked and ridiculed. You remember in one of the Gospels that says that people were hurling insults at him, saying, crucify him, kill him, get rid of him. But because Jesus had no room in his heart for these words of rejection, for these words of scorn and hatred, the words that came out of his mouth were these, Father, forgive them, for they don't don't know what they're doing. Because in the heart of Jesus, there was no room for hatred when he was hated. In the heart of Jesus, there was no room for condemnation when he was mocked. In the heart of Jesus, there was no room for revenge when he was falsely executed. And in the heart of Jesus, there was, no, there was only room for forgiveness, and he gave that to his accusers. See, good on good is easy. When somebody treats you nicely and they're kind, that's an easy thing to do. The world can do that just fine. But good on evil is godly. And this is how a heart heart becomes good, and that's how good comes out of a heart. There just isn't any space for it when a heart is full of good stuff. But in this passage, Jesus also deals with how a person develops a bad heart in this same verse, which is simply the opposite of what we just talked about, which is this. A bad heart is made by what it holds on to. Look at verse 45. He says, The evil man brings evil out of the evil stored up in his heart. Now, the interesting thing about this verse is to consider the audience to whom Jesus is speaking. He's teaching people that have made a decision to follow him. So, these are people that would be considered Christians. They're his disciples. And it's a pretty large group of people. This sermon is actually called the Sermon on the Plain. Um, There's the Sermon on the Mount. Well, he came down from a mountain, and he was on level ground, and he was preaching to his followers. So it's people like you and I who are in the audience, and he's telling them about this very important truth that can happen to them even as his followers. And he knows how even they can be subject to harboring things in their hearts that are not of God. Now, the tricky thing is that God is in our hearts And in this case, he's he's just in our hearts with all this other stuff. So when Jesus is talking about this, he's saying that it's not that God is not in your heart. It's just that God is in your heart with all of this other stuff that you're letting to come in. It's just that the bad stuff is taking up more space than the good stuff. And perhaps in certain cases, what happens is God gets put in the basement of a person's heart when the action is happening on the main floor. God is there. He's just not really part of the action. Now, I think you and I would agree that no one starts out thinking, you know, someday I plan on pushing God out of my life and allowing these other things to kind of take up residence, to take root, and to kind of fill the entire space of my heart. I think all of us probably start out thinking, you know, we want to do better. We want to treat people nicer. We want to make a difference for the kingdom of God. But we have to remember the Bible says that we have to stay alert. The devil is poised to pounce on you and would like nothing better than to catch you napping. And it says, keep your guard up in 1 Peter 5.8. So the devil knows when your guard is down and he knows how to creep his way into your heart to steal the space that isn't his to have. That someone might hurt your feelings, and so the devil convinces you to hold a grudge. Someone lies to you, and so the devil convinces you that you can't trust anyone, including those closest to you. Someone betrays you, and so the devil convinces you that you can never have a lifelong relationship ever again. Your parents neglected you, and so the devil convinces you that authority figures are out to ruin your life and to take things from you. Maybe you were wounded by a spiritual leader, and the devil convinces you that God's leaders are only out to elevate their own lives and not yours. I heard a story one time about the Greek mythological figure known as Achilles. Um, The story tells us that his mother actually dipped him in this magical river after he was born, holding him by his heel. And this made him nearly an invincible warrior, but he did have a secret weakness. It was his heel, because that's where his mother held him from. And the story goes that in the Battle of Troy, his opposition known as Apollo, knowing of his vulnerable spot, directed somebody with a bow and arrow to shoot him in the heel, and it hit his heel, and Achilles died from that wound. The devil knows your Achilles heel. He will find that specific area of your heart, and he will aim for it. So what is your Achilles heel? Are you easily offended? Are you naturally suspicious? Are you an analytical person who has a bent towards a critical spirit? What is it for you? I think one of the main Achilles heels for God's people is fear. I've heard it said that fear is the second most mentioned topic in the Bible. And I think of this when I read of God's people in Numbers chapter 13. When they were about to enter the promised land, you remember God told Moses to send 12 spies to check out the land of Canaan, and he sent one from each tribe of Israel. When the spies came back, they said that the land was beautiful, They said it was plush, flowing with milk and honey. They even brought some fruit back from the land for everyone to see. But they only had one problem. That most of the spies came back and started telling the people that the land is very powerful. They said the cities are walled up. They can't be penetrated. They even said the people that were there looked like Goliath. And so they were seized by fear. And this is what the spies said. In Numbers chapter 13. Take a look on the screen. It says, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land that we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. You see, fear had filled their hearts, and it filled their mouths, so much so to the point where this fear was spread throughout the entire community of God's people, and out of the overflow of their hearts, these spies spoke fear into one another to a point where they started to change how they viewed themselves. They said, we are like grasshoppers in our own eyes. See, when fear takes up too much storage space in a person's heart, they start to even speak a false identity about who they are. For instance, fear even led Moses to tell God that he was incapable of leading God's people because he stuttered and had never been a good speaker. But if you read in Acts chapter 7, it tells us that Moses had one of the most advanced educations uh, in, in his time. Often we don't read about that. Moses was very well trained, very well prepared, but he had allowed fear to take up too much space to a point where he started to perceive himself as an incapable leader. The fear is such a powerful force that can convince us of things that prevent us from stepping into the promise that God has for us. So when Jesus talks about an evil heart, he is saying that this can happen to people like you and me to the people of God, people like the Israelites, people like Moses, and eventually this stuff that is in your heart begins to come out of your mouth, which leads to our last idea. Your mouth speaks what your heart has held on to. So if you want to know what is in a person's heart, it's not really hard to figure out, says Jesus, Just listen to what they talk about. This is what he says in Luke chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. I'm just taking a few phrases out. He says, each tree is recognized by its own fruit. And what he means is captured in verse 45 when he says, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So Jesus is saying that you will speak in accordance with what you have in your heart. The fruit from the tree will always correspond to the root of the tree. So what you have held on to in your heart below the surface will eventually make its way out of your mouth above the surface. In the same way, if a person claims to be a follower of Jesus, certain things come out of their lives, and they should produce a certain kind of fruit in their lives. So where I want to kind of close things out today is with a passage of Scripture that we all know about, But it relates based on what we see here in Luke chapter 6. Galatians 5.22 is a very famous verse that all of us know about. It's about the fruit of the Spirit. And this is what Paul says about the fruit of the Spirit. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, And self control. Now, what I have done for you to kind of further unpack this idea is I have provided um, kind of a a page up here for you, and um, um, we're going to compare the fruit of the Spirit with what I am referring to as the fruit of the self. So I did a little bit of research this week, and I found uh, kind of corresponding research that says fruit of the self is kind of made up of these terms that you see here. Uh, to your right, it's to my left. And then fruit of the spirit are the things that I just read about in chapter chapter 22, excuse me, chapter five, verse 22, in Galatians. So to help us kind of bring all of these pieces together, what I'd like to do is take this a step further and talk about the corresponding nature of fruit and the heart. Because if the heart is known by the mouth, the kind of heart you have will speak these kinds of words. So I'm going to kind of go through these in rapid succession, so be ready for me, Tina. A heart full of indifference will often speak words that make people feel less value. Whereas in contrast to this, a heart full of love will speak words that make people feel more value. A heart full of sorrow will speak words that make people feel like life has no meaning. Whereas a heart full of joy will speak words that make people feel like all of life has meaning. A heart full of anxiety will speak words that make others feel nervous, whereas a heart full of peace will speak words that make others feel calm. A heart full of instant gratification will speak words that are demanding, kind of like I did when I was stuck in a traffic jam. A heart full of patience will speak words that are reassuring. A heart that is careless will speak words that destroy a person's spirit. A heart full of kindness will speak words that restores a person's spirit. A heart full of immorality will speak words that offend others. And a heart full of goodness will speak words that defend others. A heart full of doubt will speak words that incorrectly explain God's intent. A heart full of faith will speak words that correctly explain God's intent. A heart full of harsh words will speak words that bring others down. A heart full of gentle words will speak words that lift others up. A heart full of no restraint will speak words that divide. And a heart full of self-control will speak words that unify. So what kind of fruit do you see in your life? Are you building people up, or do you constantly tear people down? Do you like to stir up controversy, or do you try to unify people? Do you speak words that destroy a person's spirit, or do you make efforts to restore someone's spirit? See, Jesus said the fruit you see is because of the heart you have. And the only way to change our words is not simply to change our words, is to change our heart. I heard a story that really illustrates this point, and I'm going to read it to you in closing. It's a cute story, and I think that you'll enjoy it. It's about a pig getting a new heart. It says, Mary had a little pig, and it was white as snow. That is when it had a bath, as you, of course you might know. But Mary had an awful time to keep the piggy clean, for it was just the dirtiest pig that one had ever seen. She'd wash him and she'd scrub him till he would squirm and squeal, as if he wanted her to know it was an unfair deal. And then inside his green backyard, he'd plan from morning to night, unless he happened to sneak out and lose himself from sight. And then when Mary found him, he'd be blacker than ever before, so Mary'd get the soap again and scrub the pig some more. Poor Mary thought and wondered uh, wondered much what she could ever do until she figured out a plan, and this is what she carried through. She took him to a doctor who put the pig to sleep, and then he took his heart right out, but not, of course, to keep. And then he took a little lamb and took his heart out too and put it in the little pig before the piggy knew. When the little piggy did awake, he had no more desire Wallow in the mud again or ever in the mire and try as hard as he ever could, he never understood how such a pig as once as he could ever be so good. I don't know about you, but sometimes I would like a new heart because I'm often very ashamed of the words that I speak, I'm often very ashamed of the words that proceed from my mouth. I had to apologize to my wife yesterday for words that I spoke to her in the morning. And there are times when I would prefer to have new speech. But to have new speech, you have to have a new heart. And God offers us all this opportunity in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 26. From the Message Bible, look at the screen. It says this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove the stone heart from your body and replace it with a heart that's God-willed, not self-willed. I'll put my spirit in you and make it possible for you to do what I tell you and live by my commands. You'll once again live in the land I gave your ancestors. You'll be my people, and I'll be your God. So I guess the question today is not, do you want to speak new words? It's a deeper question. Are you willing to let God put a new heart in you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of wisdom that you offer to us from your son, Jesus. Many of us can find ourselves embroiled in a conversation that later on does damage that later on has repercussions that we wish we could totally delete and erase from our lives. But you have told us that you will put a new heart in our lives so that we can speak new words to others. I pray for anyone in this room right now who heard this message and who is holding on to things in their heart that produces words that are inconsistent with what you want them to speak and with what they want to speak. So I pray, God, that you would give those persons in this room today a new heart. We thank you for your heart and what it demonstrates to us. That you're willing to lay down the offenses, lay down the anger, lay down the criticism, lay down the rejection. Respond with a good heart. We thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.